I've heard that there's a Chinese curse that goes like this. May you live in interesting times. Well, I think we live in pretty interesting times. And when you consider the, uh, the powerful forces at play in the world that affect us quite significantly, you can see that life is unpredictable and full of tumultuous change. The forces that are affecting our economy, our climate, our uh, political process in this country, uh, international uh, religious conflict. There's just huge forces unleashed upon the world that we are heir to, that we are affected by, maybe not so apparently immediately, but certainly in the long run, they have a significant impact uh, on our life and just how we view the world. And in some sense, we could say that these forces unleash uh, kind of demons in the world or Difficult energies to deal with, both within ourselves, personally, among ourselves, interpersonally, internationally, and we could see that the what the Buddha called the vicissitudes of life, the to and fro, the the pain and pleasure, the gain and loss, the fame and disrepute, and all of the uh, the full spectrum of all of these forces are moving our heart and mind around. And in the midst of it, we're trying to be stable and happy and secure and live, live our life as, as, as best we can. But even though we know that all of us experience plenty of pleasure and plenty of pain, and all of us experience plenty of gain of material goods and recognition and abundance of one sort or another, we also experience a tremendous amount of loss. And while we might all wish for just the gain and the pleasure, we know it's inevitable that we're going to experience loss and pain and being disreputed or unliked by others at times. It's just inevitable. And there isn't any one of us that can avoid the forces that, that, that dump these experiences in our heart. And so when we think about interesting times and how it almost feels like we're just a, a cork floating on the surface of these giant waves. In some ways, we are. You know, remember a few years ago when the tsunami, or the earthquake, and then the tsunami hit northern Japan? Those people were living their life up to that point like we do, just assuming that 
today is like yesterday and tomorrow will be like today and we just go on with the way things are kind of in a very predictable as secure as we could be way and yet instantly just and dramatically and tragically all of their lives were completely changed and there wasn't anything that any of them could do about it couldn't stop it from happening now imagine you were in that situation living there at that time and the earthquake happens and the tsunami washes through and does its damage as you have seen photos of when you look around at the destruction and devastation who is it that you would want to see coming towards you what kind of person who is it that would be most resilient most creative most accommodating most understanding patient supportive, helpful in a situation like that. That's not the person that lived on the biggest house. It's not necessarily the person with the biggest bank account or the most prestigious job. But it's the one who is most human. The one who could recognize the human dimension of what has happened to them all or us all. Well, in fact, all of us have a tsunami headed towards us. We don't know when it's going to land. We don't know the nature of it. It could be economic. It could be medical. It could be emotional, psychological. It could be spiritual. It could be anything. And in an instant, the way of life we have always known gets thrown into question. What, what can you do, or what would you do, to prepare yourself, or what contingency plans would you develop within yourself for dealing with this inevitable trouble ahead? fact, the work we're doing here today is the work that's needed to be done to most prepare ourselves for such inevitability. And why is that? Because through our efforts to just be present, to be aware, to accommodate the, the body and the mind and the heart, the way they appeared today, it requires a lot of patience, trust, energy, resolve, generosity amongst us all to support each other, uh, practicing with some clarity, sincerity, integrity, if you will, understanding what's going on. That's the only way you can practice. That's the only way you can do this practice, is to cultivate these qualities moment by moment, as needed, given the <coughs> situation at hand, whatever the present moment offers us. 
And these are the qualities that would be most useful, most reliable, most uh, wanted in any situation like the tsunami. Or, in fact, in every situation in life. And that is what we're doing with our time here. Sometimes in the, you know, kind of in the struggle with knee pain and boredom and sleepiness and the, you know, the, the other experiences you had today, we lose the picture. We lose the big picture of what it is we're actually doing here. We're not just struggling to, get, to learn how to sit comfortably without knee pain. Maybe that's what you think you're doing, and yes, we do some of that, but really it's so much bigger, and the the qualities of heart that are being developed and called upon to do this practice have so much more application in our life than just getting through the day without too much struggle. And so I want to just mention some of these qualities tonight so that you can reflect on them as you move through the rest of the retreat and really try to put your the effort you're making to have a perspective on it that whether you think you're doing well or not, whether you're accomplishing what you think you came for or having the kinds of experience you'd hope for. Whether any of that happens or not, these qualities are still being developed. And so, you know, how do you know a good sitting from a bad sitting? If you're sitting, it's a good sitting. You know, that's, I mean, every sitting is a good sitting. I mean, we not, we may not, it may not be pleasant, we may not like it, we may not recognize it's how it's good, but if you're making any effort have any aspiration, making any effort to be awake, to be aware, to recognize what's going on in your life, to to have some re, uh, kind of, uh, not necessarily thoughtful, but some kind of balanced response to it, rather than just a kind of blind emotional reactivity to it. If you're making any effort in that direction, that's that's all you can do in any moment. That's it. You just do it more moments of the day and the the momentum builds up to where it's available as a resource in times of minor or major distress in your life. And it's important to remember that these are the qualities of um, real resilience. Not, not just stiffness and and a stuck-to-itness, but real resilience and adaptability to the inevitable changes that uh, visit us in our life. When we think of the kind of person we'd like to meet, you know, maybe we'd like to meet uh, Mother Teresa, someone who's very compassionate and can really kind of register and take in all of the immense suffering of those who were dying or about to die or had others die. And maybe you'd want the patience of Nelson Mandela, who 
could just endure so much solitude and so much brutality and isolation for, what, 27 years? <coughs> On behalf of what? Freedom for his people. Or maybe honored like Aung San Suu Kyi or, or Martin Luther King. Fearlessness in speaking truth to power. Both of them confronting forces of political power that were just quite willing to wipe them out instantly, just wipe them off the face of the earth. And yet, a kind of courage or a resolve in their heart that just allowed them to see things as they were and to acknowledge it to others. This is the way it is. It's not okay. We need a little dose of this in our life pretty regularly. That kind of compassion, that kind of honesty, that kind of patience, that kind of compassion. And in fact, we all have these qualities of heart and mind. We all, we're all, we all know what patience is. We all know what kindness is. We all know what generosity is. We've, we've all been uh, helpful, less reactive, understanding, persevering, sincere, living our life with integrity. And while we have this potential within us, we don't always, we don't always manifest it. You know, we take the shortcut, or we take the comfortable way, or we just do things kind of superficially, and we, we miss the opportunity, really, to, to be our best. And yet, we recognize that, that these qualities are the qualities of good human beings anywhere on the face of the earth. It doesn't matter which culture, or which religion, or which political system one is living under or within. People who are kind and patient and understanding and persevering and living with integrity are valued everywhere. And that's really what we're doing here, is cultivating these universal human qualities of goodness. The Buddha became a Buddha upon the completion of developing these qualities of heart to perfection. In the Theravada tradition of teachings that we're practicing in, or from, the, these qualities of mind are called the paramis, the forces of purification, the forces of purity in our mind, or the perfections of mind, because they are the forces or the qualities of mind that are apparent, that, that come out, that emerge when attachment or greed, as well as aversion and confusion or delusion, are put aside. When we've purified the mind of these unskillful uh, qualities of mind, then these forces of purity emerge. And the Buddha is one who, after lifetimes of, well, dedication to developing these qualities of mind, um, reached some level of perfection 
and thereupon became a Buddha with that understanding. You know, it's said that at the time of a former Buddha, we live in the time of Gautama Buddha, who lived about 25, 2600 years ago. But in a former time, much longer before that, there was another Buddha called Dipankara Buddha. And there was an ascetic at that time called Sumedha, who, when Dipankara Buddha came to the village that he was a hermit in, he went to pay respects or see the Buddha, Dipankara Buddha. And when he, when he saw Dipankara Buddha coming from afar, he was quite impressed with the quality of being. We just really was able to recognize the radiance of heart and mind and the purity of the Buddha. And to himself, he, he acknowledged that he too would one day like to become a Buddha, would like to develop those qualities. And it's said in this tradition that when someone like that makes an aspiration to become a Buddha in front of a living Buddha, and that Buddha recognizes that aspiration, then they confirm it. And indeed, in this case, the story goes that Dipankara Buddha confirmed to the ascetic Sumedha that indeed, in some future lifetime, he would become a Buddha. But that set him that 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 made him become a bodhisattva. You know, now he was a being destined to become a Buddha. And it's said that even in that lifetime, the ascetic Sumedha, that if he had heard a single word of teaching of Dipankara Buddha, he would have become enlightened. He would have been liberated. His mind was that pure already. And yet, by becoming a Buddha, or by becoming a Bodhisattva, in order to become a Buddha, not just an enlightened being, but a Buddha, he then had to undertake hundreds of lifetimes, hundreds of lifetimes, in different forms, in order to perfect all of these beautiful human qualities. Generosity, integrity, wisdom, loving kindness. And some of the stories of those lifetimes that are called the Jataka tales are just phenomenal. The amount of uh, challenges that the Bodhisattva had to meet and face in order to perfect these qualities are just phenomenal. And yet, throughout that journey of hundreds of lifetimes, he kept his aspiration clear and his kind of compass, spiritual compass pointed in that direction. And when these qualities of heart and mind were the default, became the default setting of his mind, so that in any situation it was understanding and loving kindness and generosity and patience that arose first, rather than whinging and whining, complaining and feeling victimized and, you know, uh, otherwise. But it was like these wholesome qualities were the first impulse of the mind. Well, I don't know about you, but I got some room for improvement. (laughs) I'm no bodhisattva, or I'm certainly not close to perfecting these qualities of mind. They're not the first impulse of the mind in a lot of challenging situations. They may eventually arrive on the scene, but sometimes the mind resorts to less noble qualities of reactivity. 
But because we've seen them within ourselves, all of these qualities, we know that there is a potential within us to uh, develop them further. We all know that we can practice patience a little more frequently, practice loving kindness or understanding or resolve or, or whatever, or generosity. And we can do that, but we know that we're going to confront, we're going to have to confront our personal limitations. We don't think we can be more patient. We don't think we can be more understanding. We don't think we can be more generous. Or, there, or we have reasons for not being that way. And so we're going to, in the process, we're going to confront our uh, sense of ourself, our cultural conditioning, our family conditioning, our uh, expectations of ourselves, aspirations that we have. But this is the practice to do that. In fact, in, in this practice of mindful awareness, of just the way things are for you on a moment-to-moment basis, you will eventually confront all of these self-imposed limitations of uh, that, that we resort to, kind of, in, rather than aspire to. But even though we know that we have the potential to strengthen these qualities of heart and mind, it doesn't happen if we don't make a choice, if we don't recognize that we have a choice in every moment to act on them, to develop them. And so recognizing the potential is really only the first phase, the first step, just recognizing that we do have the potential, but then making it a personal choice, to really choose to value these qualities over any others. And here's where we get into trouble with our self and and others. Because imagine for a minute that equanimity is one of these. Someone who's non-reactive, someone who's balanced, someone who has a um, a more uh, equipoise in the mind. Our culture doesn't really value equanimity. You know, it likes shrill, hysterical, partisan screaming. It doesn't like, it doesn't really value. I mean, nobody on TV is going to value equanimity so much as, you know, shrill, partisan politics. And so we quite naturally, in our exposure to the way things are, also take on the, the idea or the attitude or the belief or the habit of being very opinionated. I don't have to convince you of that. You know, we all get pretty judgmental, pretty opinionated, because that's the cultural norm. So when we take on the practice of the paramis to be more balanced and less partisan... We may have to give up our opinionatedness. Well, try it. <laughs> you know, it's it's not easy. There's a lot of um, a lot of cultural expectation that we're going to be very partisan. We're going to have our views and opinions and stick to them, and 
and act on them and shrilly lay them out there. Well, there's, there's value in that in some situations, but it's not through the development of, it doesn't conduce to the development of a less reactive mind. So too with many other uh, of these qualities. Generosity. We have gazillion opportunities to be generous every day. I mean, it was just, there's just so many opportunities to share our knowledge, to share our time, to share our resources with others who either are less fortunate or are needy in some other way, or they don't even have to be needy. We can just see that this is a good thing to do to or for this person or this group or however you want to understand that. And yet, we don't. Why don't we? Well, you know, we're afraid of being taken advantage of and we don't want to be, we don't want to shortchange ourselves and we've just got all kinds of reasons for not being more continuously or actively generous. So, if we're going to really embark on this development of these qualities, these beautiful human qualities in our life, we're going to have to confront these beliefs, these assumptions, these habits, uh, this conditioning that we have acquired from our family and our culture and our spouse, uh, teachers, whatever. And so it's, it's, it's not the path of least resistance. It's not the path, it's not the comfortable, easy path to develop these, even though we'd all like to be more loving, more generous, more patient, more kind, more understanding. It's not easy to, it's not the easy path to develop them. And yet, if we, need, if we ask ourselves, what is it you need to do to do it? This is, what we are doing here is the very practice of confronting our assumptions, confronting our beliefs, confronting our sense of ourself, what we can or cannot do, who we are, who we are not. It is through the development of these qualities of mind, through development of mindfulness, mindful awareness, that we begin to recognize the dimensions of what it means to live a dharma lifestyle or to live a mindfulness-based life. It means everything, everything we do, everything we don't do, comes into view as something to be aware of. And to be aware of it in terms of, is this the way I want to live? Really, is this the way I want to live? And we have a choice. A lot, a lot of times we don't even recognize that we have a choice. But we always have a choice when we're practicing awareness. I want to speak about one of these qualities a little, in a little more detail tonight because... We hear talks on generosity and loving-kindness and equanimity and wisdom quite frequently in Dharma circles. But there's one quality among these ten in this tradition 
that is less readily identified and less often spoken about. And that is the quality of resolve. Resolve in the Pali language is called aditana. And there are practices for developing aditana, the power of the mind. You know, just as the mind has the capacity to increase in loving-kindness or in patience, the mind has the capacity to increase in resolve or steadfastness, you might say. And yet it takes training. When the ascetic Sumedha made his vow to become a Buddha, or his aspiration to become a Buddha, he saw the end result of what he would like to attain or become or obtain as qualities of his heart. But I don't think he knew everything he was going to have to do to get there. So what you could see is that he really... He, he set his mind in a direction that he wanted to head in that direction towards those qualities of heart and mind without really knowing what the terrain of effort was going to be to get there. I remember, it, it was several years ago now, that Rodney Smith reminded me of something I said to him. Now, I met Rodney back in 1977 when we were both on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, when it, just after it opened. And we were upstairs in the attic, one of my first days of working there, and we were insulating some dorm rooms. For those of you who have been in the Catskills dorm, um, we were insulating these rooms, and we were having a discussion about <coughs> Nibbana, I had done one retreat at that point, and we were having this discussion, and and he reminded me that I told him then, with utter and absolute conviction, I have no doubt in this life I'll realize the Dhamma. Of course, I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I didn't know what was involved in that. I didn't know what it even meant. But I was sure that that was the direction I was going. And that's aspiration. That's, that, that's an aspiration that you don't really know what's involved. You just know that I want to go in that direction for as long and as far as I can. And I think the goal or the end of that is realization of the Dharma. So I could say that without knowing really what I was getting myself into. I've had plenty of opportunities, believe me, in the ensuing 35, 40 years of saying, wait a minute, I want to change directions. (laughs) I'd rather go somewhere else. But it won't let go. It doesn't let go. And the direction is always there. And practicing resolve or aditana or resolve of the mind is not so much hanging on to the goal, it's being willing to realign yourself with the direction at every moment. Whenever you find yourself off the track, headed in the wrong direction, that you then remind yourself, oh, wait a minute, this isn't the direction I want to go. You may not be there yet, of course. We're not, we're not finished. And yet we can re, 
can make this adjustment to get back on track, headed in the right direction. It's said that you know the uh, you know the space shuttle that they used to send up to the space station up there somewhere, <laughs> spying on us. Uh, they uh, they say that you know when they send the the space shuttle up, it's got the computers on board that kind of have programmed into it how to get there, or they make the adjustments from ground control. But it's said that you know the, the space shuttle is off course something like 97% of the time. It's off course, not headed in the right mm-hmm. direction. But because they make so many innumerable mid-course corrections, it actually gets to the point. It gets to the space station. Well, our practice is kind of like that. We, we know where, we, we want to we head in that direction, but we're off course most of the time. Like today's practice, you know. <laughs> and yet, when we recognize that we're off course, and we make a mid-course correction, then we come back into alignment with our aspiration. This is the power of resolve. When you're willing to do that, and not take you know, a detour, or feel that, oh, because you're off course, that you just give up. Oh, God, here I am again. After 25 times today, I'm, I'm, my mind is it's useless, it's hopeless. I'm never going to, you know, that's giving up. But it's just when we recognize that we're off course and we just remind ourselves, no, um, I'm headed in this direction of more awareness and more balance of mind. Okay. Then that's strengthening the power of resolve. Resolve or right resolve or skillful resolve, is not about ambition, it's not about struggling, it's not about holding on to uh, something inflexibly, like the goal. We're not holding on to the goal, we're holding on to the direction, or we're kind of reaffirming our aspiration to move in this direction, towards more awareness. And it, it's a big, it makes a big difference in how you practice throughout the day. If you think that you're supposed to be practicing or having a certain kind of experience, then you'll be judging yourself, holding on to that idea of what you're supposed to be experiencing and struggling to either get it or hold on to it or judging yourself for not yet having it within grasp, within reach. That's not skillful. You end up struggling with your own idea, your own bad idea of what good practice is. But if we are practicing with resolve, then it's not so much that we're holding on to some idea of what we're supposed to be experiencing or getting, but we just are willing to re-commit to the direction of practice. And the direction of practice is to be present. It's not about the future. It's not about any particular kind of experience. It's about, can I be present with this moment's experience? The direction is in. It's not out there anywhere. In every moment, can we just turn around, take a look within and say, okay, what's going on? How am I relating to this moment's experience? And if we can do that, then we're headed in the right direction. We're reaffirming our aspiration and we're developing the power of resolve to fulfill that aspiration. 
We're not holding on to our idea of what that's going to look like. But we're just willing to be there for the next step, which is the next moment. It's experience. Can I be there? Now, what, what prevents us from having this kind of resolve? Sometimes we waver. Sometimes we have doubt. Sometimes we doubt the path of practice. I mean, many of you have practiced in other traditions a lot. Some of you use primary objects, some of you use counting breaths, some of you use concentration practices, uh, body awareness practices. And here we are offering you these teachings on awareness of mind, which is different than maybe you've heard. And quite naturally, if it's different than what you've practiced and have been practicing and, and have appreciated in practice formally, you could have some doubt. Could, you could wonder, is this really, is, it, is this really working? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've I've done thirty years or twenty years or twenty retreats or two retreats, whatever it is, of some other practice, and I know that that's got some benefit. Why should I give it up? And that kind of reflection or that kind of mm, internal chatter uh, is the manifestation of doubt. Maybe this isn't going to work, or maybe maybe I maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe I don't really understand what they're saying, what I've given for instructions today. Maybe I'm not doing that right. Maybe I can't do it anyway. Even if I even if I know what I'm supposed to be doing, I can't do it. We have doubt about ourselves. We have doubt about the teaching. We have doubt about the effect, efficacy of the teachings or the, of the practice. And when any of those are present and not recognized then they undermine the resolve in our mind. They kind of weaken the continuity of our efforts. So doubt has this terrific undermining uh, capacity. With doubt present, unrecognized, when it's unrecognized, when we're not aware of it, then we get entangled in all the speculation of whether it can or whether it works or not. And oftentimes we try to think our way through it. But at this level of practice, you cannot think your way out of doubt. You can borrow some confidence that I or Alexis or Vance has, because we've practiced in this way. You can borrow that and say, well, they've done it, let me, let me try it. But it's just borrowed. It's good for temporary but ultimately you have to come to your own understanding of how this practice works for you and then and, and thereby put aside doubt about whether it's effective or not. Sometimes we're just lazy. Sometimes you know we, we get a clear uh, vision of the direction that we want to go and we meet obstacles. It's, it's just not possible to walk this path of awareness and awakening and not meet any obstacles. We're going to meet all kinds of what look like, initially, problems. Uh, insurmountable uh, deficiencies within ourselves or conditions in the world that just don't support doing what it is we need to do. And it's going to feel like I've hit a roadblock, I've hit a dead end, I can't get there. 
And it, it, believe me, it's not that far away. You know, knee pain can give you, can, can sometimes look like an insurmountable ob- obstacle because it just undermines our commitment to just be here with this experience, recognize how we're relating to it, and notice what happens to it. Laziness, or the collapse of energy in the form of sloth and torpor, or just giving up, it's very subtle sometimes. If we get too too determined and grim about practice, right resolve is not grim. It's not grimness. It's remembering and realigning as necessary. If we get grim and hold on and grit our teeth and shrug and clench our fists and hunch our shoulders and furrow our brow, you can be sure. Too tight. On the other hand, when there's a weakness in energy, we say that when energy collapses, then we also have no resolve. And it can be as subtle as, this is a visual teaching here, it can be as subtle as you're going along, you're noticing this, you're noticing this, you're noticing this, you're noticing it again, and then you go. And you just drop. You just, you drop the ball within. You just drop the willingness to endure that next moment's experience. Whether it's painful or frustrating or dullness or sleepiness or whatever it is, you just... You kind of collapse, the energy collapses, the inner energy collapses, and when it does, doubt rushes in, and then we're, we're off in a multiple hindrance attack, you know, really having to struggle to kind of reestablish our confidence, reestablish our aspiration, reaffirm our aspiration, and you know, recommit to our resolve. Sometimes, also, our aspiration and our resolve to realize it is contaminated by attachment. And often it's in the form of uh, ambition. We get an idea that if I can succeed in my aspiration, then it's something for me. I've got something. And it, it, it ends up being a personal kind of challenge, or a personal, we see it as a personal attribute, or we see it as a, uh, a very personal endeavor, something that I accomplish. And I think that that's, while generally we could say, yeah, that, that is what happens, in a way, it's not a helpful understanding when we're actually practicing. Because if we're just striving and struggling and hanging on to wanting to get something, whether it's enlightened or free of the knee pain or whatever it is, that attitude of mind actually undermines our confidence in our resolve. Because we're kind of, kind of, making it a personal success or failure. It's a story of a personal success or failure. And in fact, 
you know, realizing the Dharma is not about a personal success or a personal failure. It's about wisdom, recognizing the conditions that cause suffering and letting go of them, or recognizing the conditions that cause happiness or well-being and pursuing them. And it's not about a personal, I got it, I don't have it. It's about the nature of wisdom that is developed in, well, the kind of practice you were doing today. Just how do you wisely understand your experiences of today? Is it something that you succeeded or failed at? <coughs> or is it something that you, are, you begin to understand more of like how the conditions came together to produce suffering or how the conditions come together to produce a sense of ease in practice? It's wisdom that knows the difference. It's not you particularly. You can't make it happen one way or the other. But you can observe so carefully that you begin to recognize, oh, when it's like this, there's a sense of ease in the mind. And when it's like that, there's a sense of struggle in the mind. And then we can cultivate those conditions that tend towards more ease, understanding, wisdom, and put aside or not pursue those conditions or recognize and not pursue those conditions that lead to more tightness, stress, hanging on. So this quality of resolve is a living, dynamic uh, quality in the heart. It's not just something you either have or not, and you have it a little or you have it a little a lot. It's something that we can and do cultivate on a moment-to-moment basis with our practice. Now, when you think about... Just take a moment to kind of connect with your practice. And some of you have been practicing for a long time. Some of you are fairly new to practice. What is it that you really like out of your practice? I don't mean a personal ambition, but just what's the direction that you see your practice going. More ease in the world, more happiness, a greater sense of well-being, less reactivity. You can think of however you want to articulate it. And I'm going to tell you something. Nobody can stop you from obtaining it. Nobody. Who can stop you from aspiring and resolving and fulfilling your aspiration? Only yourself. Only your own uh, lack of resolve will do that. But because resolve is a dynamic, it's a it's a living thing. You can cultivate it. You know, if you pay attention throughout the day as you're practicing, you'll see where there's resolve, where there's you know a willingness to reorient your practice in towards the direction that you want to move. And when there isn't, sometimes there just isn't a willingness. We're just not willing to engage with this experience. It's too scary, it's too painful, it's too confusing, it's too shameful, it's too whatever. And, you know, maybe temporarily we just have to back off and go for a walk, get a cup of tea, whatever it is, but recharge our resolve and we can come back and take another look. 
But in every in every situation, it is still alive. It's a dynamic thing that can be cultivated if we pay attention to it. If we know that this is what we're working with, and we pay attention to it, then we can we can strengthen the resolve uh, in our practice. Even even in a even in a single day, you may not have seen so much um, clarity or may not have seen clearly the power of resolve or the, the increase in the momentum of your awareness. But in the course of, for those of you who've done seven or nine day retreats in the past, you know that even with just seven days or nine days of sincere practice, you can really, really awaken qualities of the mind that you haven't yet seen or tasted. It's powerful. Now imagine that you, well, devote yourself to that kind of practice throughout the rest of your life. If in seven days it's noticeable, what about seven years or more? Not that you're going to be in retreat like this all the time. That's not what we're looking for. But we're looking for those qualities of mind in our daily life. And as we awaken them here, they'll be more available in our daily life. We each have the, uh, the potential within us, and we each have the tools of these in, this instructions and these practices to develop the resolve to realize our aspiration. And no one can stop you. So let's sit for a moment and just let those words settle into our heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.